Good morning. One of the priorities that all of us have as we walk up here to this podium is that um, we would, as we've studied the passage that we're going to be looking at, that we would have made wise observations in, in that passage and that we would uh, have informed interpretation of, of what the meaning is and what God has in mind for us to hear and uh, what the author of the scripture had in mind through the Holy Spirit. And of course, then to present it in a way that makes sense. And um, I love uh, John MacArthur um, said this statement about even his perspective, and uh, certainly I feel this way, way more than probably most, but he wrote, he said this, he said, I've always seen myself not as a chef, but as a waiter. My responsibility is not to create the meal, but to try to get it to the table without messing it up. So that's kind of what I think we all kind of have in mind when we're up here. And... Um, so I don't think I'd be a very good waiter, but hopefully we'll get through this and the meal will be served and you'll get, you'll get it properly. Uh, we're looking at Luke 14, uh, verses 1 through 14, specifically this morning. And we've seen Jesus as he's been uh, moving on his way to Jerusalem for his last Passover. In fact, where he would become the Passover lamb himself. Uh, and his... Focus most recently has not been as much as many miracles uh, and much more teaching and, and communicating the truth that he wanted his followers to hear, which is which makes this passage kind of interesting, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and there is a miracle in this in this passage as well. Um, verses twenty one through twenty four is the is the entire passage, and we're going to be covering the first three phases, or the three scenes, you might say, uh, this morning, and then Matt's going to take the fourth um, next week as he goes on uh, from 15 through 24. So let's read it. Let's read uh, chapter 14 of Luke, 1 through 14. It happened that when... He went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or the rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. 
for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, try to handle this really pretty neat text. Father, we, we come to you as the body of Christ and uh, desirous of hearing from you this morning. And, uh, and what you have in mind for us through the power of your spirit to hear and to receive, uh, not just in our minds, but in our hearts in a way that we respond to it um, in very practical and significant uh, and immediate ways um, as we desire to be your church in this world until Jesus returns. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the characters at this dinner, of course, were, it was kind of a luncheon on a Sabbath day. Of course, the leader of the Pharisees, that was the host of the luncheon. And then there were the guests, there were the Pharisees, the host's friends, the Pharisees and the scribes or the lawyers and other religious elite, I'm sure, that, um, that he probably invited there. And then there was a man with dropsy and Jesus. Um, and maybe some of Jesus' close disciples, although it doesn't say here in the text, they typically traveled with him, uh, so at least some of them probably were with him at this time. But you know, this the main focus of uh, this entire description of this meal is Jesus Christ. In fact, when you, when you read the entire 24 verses, apart from one small phrase that one of the guests said, which he probably wished he could take back uh, after Jesus was done responding to it. Jesus is the only one who speaks in this entire, entire time, at least as recorded by Luke. So at this meal, Jesus was teaching more about him, himself, and about kingdom living prior to his return. But think about this luncheon. Who's the main audience that Jesus is teaching here? He's teaching the religious elite gathered together for a nice self-exalting meal. He didn't have, Jesus didn't have the crowds uh, like he has in previous chapters. A few things we want to remind you of the, regarding the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were the religious elite of Israel. They sprung up during the years and came to prominence about 160 years prior to Jesus' days. And they were dismayed at the deep decay of the Jewish people. The effects of the Greek and now the Roman pagan influence was profound. And the Pharisees, were, they were moral, middle-class people who were deeply disturbed by the breaking of God's law that they saw throughout Israel. And they were dedicated to following the law as they understood it and committed to bringing Jewish people back to law-keeping, following their lead, which they tended to do. They were like the, kind of like the moral majority of the 70s and the 80s or the back to the Bible fundamentalists. They were bringing, trying to bring people back to God's law and law-keeping. The lawyers, or the scribes as they're referred to, were the law experts. They were the ones who researched and determined uh, from the Hebrew scriptures what the Hebrew scriptures were saying for the people. And their interpre interpretations uh, eventually became known as the oral law. And the, the oral law was their interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures, and, and they were considered the experts. And, and people looked to them as, this is, this is what God has said to us. And their writings, uh, or their interpretations were not written down at the time of Jesus, but they were written down later on. Um, and they became, along with, the, as the rabbis added to them, the Mishnah and eventually the Talmud, which is still being used today, um, Gary will attest to, in, in synagogues, uh, particularly with the Orthodox. But even though they weren't written down, their interpretations of the scribes were well known. Both Pharisees and scribes were highly respected by the people, and they craved that respect. Um, 
and the honor and the power that they received from the people. Problem is, as we've discussed before, a lot of their interpretations didn't have much uh, in common with the actual word of God that they were interpreting. Instead of understanding the heart of God and his law, they often put burdens on people that they weren't even willing to keep themselves. The context of this dinner is very interesting to me because if we remember back from verse 35 of uh, chapter 13, which Brian spoke about last week, we remember that um, Jesus had basically declared judgment on the religious leaders and the, and the Jewish people and their temple. Um, and he said that uh, your house is left to you desolate. And I, and I think he referred to not just the, the temple, but to the people as a, as a, because they rejected their Messiah. Uh, that was judgment. They were, they were done, basically. Uh, they had played their cards and determined that Jesus was a fake prophet. In fact, that the miracles that he did were not done by the power of God, but by the power of Satan himself. Um, in fact, it's kind of funny, if they really believe that, why they would even invite him to a, a luncheon with Pharisees. It would have been pretty unclean if he was possessed by Satan to do that. But as a nation, he was, uh, Jesus was saying, as a people group re represented by their leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, and others, they had rejected their promised Messiah. They were done. But Jesus went to this luncheon still. And they were the main audience of his teaching. I have to see this as continued mercy, uh, merciful offer to these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders, to, to actually learn what the kingdom of God was really all about. It was an offer to repent and believe in their Messiah, who stood before them and taught them. In fact, Scripture tells us that several Pharisees actually did believe prior to Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, no doubt Nicodemus, probably Joseph of Arimathea, and then afterward, um, there were many Pharisees. There were several Pharisees, at least, that believed, and Saul was one of them, of course. So as we proceed through these 14 verses, we'll see three scenes and kind of three non-examples of what life should be like for a citizen of the coming kingdom. And these examples were given, unfortunately, by these religious leaders, the elite. And the three examples, non-examples, you might say, are self-righteousness, pride, and the last one I can't think of right now. Um, oh yeah, seeking, seeking seeking their own good, even in doing good. So as Jesus exposes the three non-examples in the lives of the religious leaders at this luncheon, he's also teaching them if they would listen. And he's teaching us if we will listen. Remember, we hear constantly from Jesus, be careful how you hear, be careful how you listen. Jesus is teaching what true kingdom citizen living looks like now on this side of the return of Jesus Christ when he will judge all those who have rejected him, all the non-citizens, and set up his physical kingdom on planet Earth with, with Jesus himself present in person and reigning over his true kingdom citizens. It's a time referred to in verse 14 as the resurrection of the righteous. The main point, I think, of these 14 verses altogether is that it is folly to live for your own kingdom when you're a citizen of God's. It's folly to live for your own kingdom when you're a citizen of God. Folly means it's foolish. It's absurd. It's lunacy. Future kingdom citizens will have a kingdom priority now. In verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus as Lord. He's Lord of the law. He's Lord over the experts of the law. He's Lord over the curse of the law. And he's Lord of the Sabbath. 
So let's look. Let's look at, at these first six verses, and then, then we'll see the first demonstration, uh, unfortunate by the lawyers and the Pharisees, of a non-example of kingdom living. Let's make some observations about the first six verses. So Jesus was invited. He accepted to this, this uh, luncheon on a Sabbath day, and it was at the home of one of the leader of the Pharisees, as we said. Why the Sabbath? Why is it always the Sabbath where things tend to happen? And, and the reason is, is because uh, for the religious elite, the Sabbath was the day when law-keeping and law-breaking was most important to them. And it was also most evident when people didn't do it. It was most visible. So when Jesus came in, it says they were watching him closely. That term means they were lurkingly watching him. They were watching him waiting to catch him in a trap, to defame him and eventually to eliminate him. That was their goal. They were constantly trying to catch Jesus in law-breaking. In verse 2, we see a man suffering from dropsy. Now here's a guess you wouldn't have expected to see at this particular party, luncheon. Dropsy is a condition, it's actually a symptom, um, which is also called edema. And you can picture this man it was full of fluid in his skin, under his skin, probably in his abdomen. He was a swollen, painful mess. Um, it says it was suffering, in fact. And typically it was an indication of either a heart, a severe heart problem, a liver problem, kidney problem, or maybe a vessel problem, but it was severe, painful, and he was probably near death, especially in that day. Uh, before great medical advancements. So, but we know, no doubt, that he was invited only as a bait to catch Jesus. He would have been considered by these religious leaders as a sinner under God's penalizing hand uh, judgment for his sin, no doubt. He certainly wouldn't have been invited because they wanted to hang out and talk with him. This man was, was no doubt only there as a trap to catch Jesus. But as usual, Jesus ended up catching them. And that's not new. Um, Solomon communicated that back in Proverbs 26, 27, when he said, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. And Jesus was bringing that to pass right in front of their eyes. In verse 3, Jesus answered, it says. In the ESV, I think it says Jesus responded. Interesting, because no one had said anything. What was he responding to? What, 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 is, what, was, his, what was he answering? Well, maybe they said something that wasn't recorded, but I think more likely Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew what the plan was. He knew uh, what they were thinking. And so he asked them a question as their answer. And as an answer, it was a question he had asked before, knowing what their answer would be. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Of course, he had dealt with the same issue just the previous chapter in the synagogue in chapter 13 and previously in chapter 6 and many times in the other Gospels. So were the Pharisees right? Was it not okay to heal on the Sabbath? No, of course it was all right. Of course it was good. It was nowhere in the Hebrew Scriptures where it said someone couldn't receive medical care on a Sabbath or couldn't help someone in need on the Sabbath. But then, of course, Jesus had the right interpretation. He's the one that wrote the law of the Sabbath. So uh, we can trust his interpretation. So in verse 4, they wouldn't answer him. They couldn't answer him. Why would they answer him? If they said no, which is what they really believed, then that would have blown their potential trap of catching Jesus. And if they said yes, because maybe deep down they really knew what they were that it was okay to heal on the Sabbath, 
They would never have said that with all those religious elite there. And then it says that Jesus took hold of him, of this man with dropsy. This is a very strong word. It means to grab. It's the same word that uh, was used when Paul and Silas were grabbed um, and taken hold of and taken before the authorities in Philippi. It's a strong word. And Jesus grabbed him, probably hugged him, and he didn't need a diagnosis of what was causing the dropsy. He didn't need to do blood work. He didn't need x-rays. Jesus healed him because he is the great physician. He's the one who created him. This man's horribly diseased body proclaimed the brokenness of this world because of mankind's sin against God. This sickness was part of that curse, and Jesus healed him in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. He reversed the effects of the curse and showed that he is Lord over the curse of the law. He demonstrated that he is king and master, Lord, and in his kingdom, there will be no sickness. There will be no dropsy, no pain, no longer a curse on creation because of sin. Jesus was showing them once again that he was the king that could do that. But in this context, the key reason he healed the man was that in doing so, he interpreted the law right in front of the law experts. He showed that he was Lord over the law and that the law was for man and not against man. It was to help, not to hurt. Jesus had compassion on this terribly sick and about to die man. And then he sent him away. It says he sent him away. The first time I read that, I said, why didn't you let him eat lunch with, with everybody? But I think the last thing that person wanted to do, typically when people were healed by Jesus, they wanted to rejoice in God and go tell somebody and go tell their family and their friends what God had done for them. The last thing they wanted to do is to have lunch with a bunch of hypocrites. So in verse 5, Jesus openly exposed their hypocrisy. If they really understood the law and wanted to follow it, they would have had compassion on the man with dropsy. They wouldn't have used him as a pawn in their scheme to catch Jesus. Actually, they probably couldn't care less about the, couldn't have cared less about this man. So Jesus' second question, they didn't answer either. The second question was, which one of you will have a son or an ox, or some of your verses may say a donkey or an ox, fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Well, they didn't answer that either. Because it was so obvious, why would they even answer it? Of course, they would pull their son or even their donkey or their ox if they fell into a well on a Sabbath day. And so Jesus showed himself as Lord over those at law experts. And of course, he knew the heart of the Sabbath. He had, he had said in Mark that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in Luke 6, 5 that we had read, he said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And that didn't endear him to the people very much, to the to religious leaders. So Jesus was demonstrated here who he was, but he was also revealing the hypocrisy of the Pharisaic self-righteousness. And, and so the first trait that is characteristic of a non-citizen of the kingdom, and I think shows up in these first six verses, is that it's a, it's a self-righteousness that leads to misinterpretation of God's word and judging of others. A self-righteous person will interpret and apply God's word according to his own heart's desire, not God's. And we see that all too often. We see it in individuals. We see it, unfortunately, in religious leaders today. The desires of a person's heart have a very strong influence over how they decide to interpret the word. When we do this, we're acting 
as if we know more than God. We're acting like self-righteous Pharisees. We're showing a low regard for the word of God, and that puts us on very dangerous ground. So what is Jesus teaching here by his own actions and words that contrast to the ways of the Pharisees and the lawyers? What does Luke want Theophilus and us to really deeply know? First, he might refer back to Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you or take away from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. The religious leaders added to the scriptures for their own benefit. Now, this is common in the cults today, uh, and it shows itself as legalism also in, in the church today. Making rules beyond what scripture actually says, and then judging others when they don't follow it. This is Pharisaic and not a characteristic of a kingdom citizen. But the contrast that Jesus, I think, is most clearly demonstrating here is that God's truth, God's law, and eventually the law of Christ is for man. He's not against man. God's kingdom ways are always for his glory and man's good. God's kingdom ways are always for his glory and man's good. We see here that once again, Jesus had exposed the religious experts. They were not concerned about God's kingdom, only their own. The question I asked myself as I was studying this is that here we are at CBC, and we're a, we're a Bible-teaching church. Do we think of ourselves sometimes as experts of God's word? Maybe. We're a teaching church, and I'm glad we are. That's what attracted Terry and me here many, many, many years ago, uh, was because the word is taught. But sometimes I, I feel uncomfortable with that term or that label that we get of, as, be, as being a, a teaching church because although we need to be that for sure, we need to be much more than that. We must be much more than that. True knowledge of God's word always results in a response to that knowledge. Otherwise, it really isn't knowing the scripture. To deeper love for Jesus will be the result, greater obedience, and real acts of love for others emanating from these walls and from the walls of our homes. Otherwise, it's not true biblical knowledge. So we must remember that knowledge can puff up and beware of that. I can tell you that I've met believers who know much less scripture than I do, and yet I've learned so much from them about their works of faith and their labors of love. So not all knowledge results in that, unfortunately. Again, the point is, like the Pharisees and the scribes, it's possible to know the scriptures and not know the scriptures. Again, Gary experiences that when he goes into the synagogues and the Orthodox. They know the word, but they don't know the word. If we really know the word, we won't wag our heads at sinners. We're going to care about them, people that are lost, and actively pursue opportunities to tell them about the magnificence of who Jesus is and how they can have life in him. Is this how we respond when someone comes into our church family and looks a little rough? If we really know the word, we won't ignore the sick, like this man with dropsy, the hurting, the lonely, the hungry, the depressed, the persecuted. We'll pursue opportunities to help them. If we really know the word, we won't look down on fellow believers who haven't been taught like, like us or gossip about them. Instead, we'll be praying for them and for their church leaders and teachers or perhaps looking for opportunities to disciple them ourselves. And lastly, we won't act like self-righteous Pharisees putting rules on other people that in secret we don't even do ourselves. We're always criticizing Pharisees and the scribes, and, and for good reasons, but be careful, we can be like them, and too often are. And this is not minor to Jesus. This is not okay 
Remember back in Luke 11:46, he wrote these words. He said, woe to you lawyers, devastation, judgment. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And in 11.52, he said, Woe to you, lawyers. Woe. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Knowing the word of God should help us to help others enter the kingdom of God. If not, we don't know it. We must use God's truth to help people, to love them. That's what kingdom citizens do. So we move on to verse 7. 7 through 11 is the next scene, if you will, of this, at this luncheon. And here Jesus is giving a parable, and a parable, of course, is a story to teach a spiritual truth. In verse 7, we see that Jesus was speaking specifically to the invited guests who were there. And who were these guests again? Of course, they were the religious elite who would have been invited by the religious elite host who was hosting this luncheon. Very possibly there were some Sanhedrin that were in there who were the cream of the Pharisee crop, the most religious of the religious. It's interesting to see how, hear how Jesus is, and he always does this, he watches behavior to evaluate the heart behind it. He cares about what we want, what we work for, what we think about, what we strive for, as we talked about a few weeks ago. So he told them a story, and if they realized that the king was standing before them, if they realized that the offer of the kingdom was standing before them, well, it was an opportunity. It was a merciful opportunity, a gracious one for them to know, uh, to repent of their self-promoting passions and their get-all-you-can-now perspective of life and to believe in their promised Messiah. It was an opportunity. As we read in verses 8 through 10, the story was about going to a wedding feast, which is always a major event, and even more so back then. And Jesus lovingly teaching them a basic truth of skillful living, of wisdom. And that is, it is better uh, to, move to, to be moved to a place of greater honor by, to, by someone else than it is to sit at a place of great honor and ask to be moved down to a place of lesser honor. Again, this is not new uh, revelation. Jesus had communicated that through Solomon in Proverbs 25 when he said, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince. Jesus had watched as they maneuvered and, and manipulated their way up to the front of the room where the host was sitting so that they could recline next to the host, a place of greatest honor. And as he, he saw them, he saw what they loved and where their treasure was. And that was man's praise and the seat of honor. The Pharisees' guests, who he's talking to here, demonstrated the second trait that we want to talk about as a characteristic of non-kingdom citizens, or you might say a non-characteristic of a kingdom citizen. It's a prideful heart that leads to striving to, for self-exaltation and approval from man. This hits close to home. It's a prideful heart that leads to striving for self-exaltation and the approval of man. And Jesus sums up his teaching in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. By who? By him. By God. Maybe now in this life, but definitely 
in the then when Jesus returns. And he who, assemble, who humbles himself will be exalted by God. When? Maybe now. Sometimes now. But for sure, then, in the kingdom. This reminds us, this should remind us of, of what uh, Brian Brian's passage last week when it said, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Very similar idea, and it has uh, some reference for sure to the Jewish leaders, assuming that they were the exalted ones. They were the first. And if um, the communication is, if, if you don't receive your Messiah, and you haven't, then you will be last, and you will be humbled by God. And just the opposite for the Gentiles. So Jesus is, is graciously teaching the religious elite and his disciples and us that the prideful pursuit of our own kingdom will yield an empty prize, devastation and shame, while, the glory, while glory and honor await the humble, grateful believer. Major contrast he brings up in verse 11. Those of us who are redeemed recognize our undeserved and yet exalted position in Jesus Christ. And we should be overwhelmed by it, which is what true humility really is. And where this humility exists, seats of honor at a banquet have no interest to us. It's no draw. They're not our treasure. Our treasure is to have any seat at all in the kingdom with our Savior, Jesus Christ. That was Paul's perspective. and could have chosen several verses to communicate that. In Galatians 1.10, he said, for, I am now, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to, striving to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Galatians 1.10. This parable was of a wedding feast, and have you ever been to a wedding and seen the guests kind of hang out around the bride and the groom? Maybe wanting others to know that they were their special buddies. They were on the in crowd. That's the heart Jesus is talking about here. And it's not the heart of a king, kingdom citizen. If, if we're honest, we all struggle with this ourselves. I do. That's why we wear masks at church. I'm not talking about COVID masks. I'm talking about invisible masks. That's why we have trouble confessing sin to one another or sharing weaknesses to one another on Wednesday nights. That's why we're timid in talking to people about Jesus. We want people to see us as intelligent, as cool, as spiritually together, as financially together, as relationally together, as together. So as I'm preparing this message, and as I'm speaking this message, this is a struggle for me. And I've prayed this week, for two weeks actually, that my, my sincere desire would be for God's glory and not for my glory. This is, what, this is the application of this. And my deepest concern would be that I would communicate, as I said earlier, communicate accurately God's message, the heart of God that's in this passage accurately. And that my concern would not be what you think of me as I'm doing it. That's a challenge. But as in believers in Christ, we don't need to look good to people, to be praised by people. Not unless we're living for our own kingdom. Christ made us whole, complete, ultimately together in Him. 
If you're a believer here this morning, you have been transformed from the darkness of self to the light of the kingdom of the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ. You have God's approval, his acceptance because of the gospel. What else do we need? We don't need anything else. We should stop striving for man's approval when we already have God's. It makes no sense. In fact, when we're constantly promoting ourselves to others, we're not only acting like a non-citizen of the kingdom, but we're demonstrating that our real treasure is man's approval more than God's. And thus we defame God in doing so and the God who redeemed us. This is not nothing to Jesus. Remember in Luke 11.43, it relates. He says, woe again to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And in 20, we're going to get to later on, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. These will receive greater condemnation. Beware of seeking man's praise and exaltation. So as we leave this second scene, I think it's just an interesting thought. I'm not sure it changes anything, but when Jesus returns, neither the proud nor the humble will receive what they think they are due. Takes a minute to think about. <laughs> so we move to verse 12. Let's read that. And he went on to say to the one who had invited him. The reason I want to read this is because it was often said of Jesus that no man speaks like this man speaks. And he often spoke like this. And that's, I think, what they're talking about. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or the rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you also and invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. In other words, don't invite people with means, with stuff. Don't invite the haves, because they might repay you. Isn't that strange? If it is, if your if it's if your kingdom is all that really matters to you. Now you might say, don't play in the street, or you might get hit by a car. You might say, don't eat too much, or you might get sick. But who would say, don't invite these people, or you, they might repay you? They might invite you back. Strange talk. Jesus would say that. In fact, he goes on in verse 13, and he says, When you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they do not have any way of repaying you. Invite these people. Invite these have-nots because they can't repay you. Because they can't repay you. Sounds crazy if this world is all that you have or want. But it's absolutely not if you believe that your citizenship is not in this world. If you're living for the kingdom of God and not for the kingdom of you. It makes perfect sense if you actually believe that Jesus said in Luke, like, like he said in Luke 9.24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who saves it. But it probably didn't make any sense, unfortunately, to the religious leaders and the guests. So the Pharisaic host demonstrated the third trait characteristic of non-kingdom citizens, and that is a selfish heart that values the temporal blessings more than the spiritual and the eternal. It's kind of a what's in it for me mode of deciding what you're going to do, who you're going to invite. The teaching of, the teaching of Jesus here compares the value of earthly blessings to heavenly kingdom blessings. For the life focused on the earthly, he refers to in verse 12, that will be your repayment. It's often said of non-believers that 
this is the best it's ever going to be. But for the life focused on the kingdom that's been changed because they've, been, they've come to Christ, Jesus says in verse 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Amen. The one, like the Pharisee host in this case, who only would ever consider entertaining friends, family, and the rich, and never the poor, lame, and the blind, may get his earthly rewards, yeah, but that's all he'll ever get. If your life, if your religious life is characterized by a heart that wants to get, wants to get what brings you earthly benefit now, convenience now, comfort now, tranquility now, then you can have that. But beware, that's all the repayment you may ever get. Throughout Scripture, you will find givers and takers. It's an interesting thing as you go through the Word to evaluate giving and taking. Some are givers, some are takers. But kingdom citizens recognize their undeserved, exalted position in Christ. They don't need to be takers because they recognize the superiority of God's blessing over anything the world has to offer. That's why Paul could write in Ephesians chapter 1 and rejoice and blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on to list the magnificent, beautiful blessings that we have in Christ. And for Paul, it made a difference, didn't it? It changed his life. But in this section, Jesus is teaching all who have ears to hear that those in his kingdom will have a heart desirous of serving those in real need with no repayment, people who can't repay them. The blood-bought, redeemed believers, true believers, are willing to give up comfort and ease now for a greater payback, if you will, then. That's why Jim Elliott, remember, said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to get what he cannot lose. So the question for us at CBC is, are we willing to give up? Are you willing to give up by the power of the Holy Spirit? And if so, what exactly is that going to look like for us over the weeks and months to come? Or week after week do we sit and we hear the, the word and we tuck it in this little section in our brain called knowledge of God's word and we don't do anything about it? Or do we embrace it with our heart and respond to it, put it into action. Because Jesus calls us to a life of serving him and sacrificing in him and loving him and loving others, denying ourselves, following Jesus, becoming more of a giver and less of a taker. Basically living for his kingdom and not yours. Actually, for me, it's always come down to this. Will I strive for more of Jesus and his kingdom or more of my own? Am I willing to give up for the sake of loving and obeying my Savior, for the sake of serving in his church, developing deeper relationship in his church, and loving others like he did outside the church? Am I willing to give up for that? What am I willing to give up of my time, of my pleasures, of my money, of my comfort, of my hobbies, of my vacations, and dare I even say, of maybe time spent with family time. What am I willing to give up for the sake of the glory of Jesus? If we're willing to take the steps of faith, we will find amazing treasure and true joy. Amazing treasure and true joy and true life now, we'll find life now, and in the future, glory beyond even our greatest comprehension and imagination. 
Before we go to take communion, I just want to say that Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus was not self-righteous. He was truly, purely righteous. And Jesus used his words and, his, and the word to give life, not to be a burden, but to build up and to encourage and to strengthen. Jesus was not prideful. He did not seek exaltation. In fact, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He gave his life a ransom for many. In fact, he humbled himself to even come to earth to take on the human condition. For us to give us life. And finally, Jesus was not selfish. He was selfless. Jesus ate with the wretched who had no way of paying them back. And he died for the wretched who have no way of paying him back, right? Jesus is worth it. So our encouragement is to think about our lives and about his word and his exhortation to these people and to us and to respond according to his word and not just tuck it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your loyal love for us, for your amazing love that helped us to come out of the darkness of self and into the light of your kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. One day to see him as he returns, as he sets up his kingdom here on earth. We rejoice in that. And Lord, we want to live our lives as, as the body of Christ here at Community. We want to live our lives living that truth, not just knowing the truth, but truly knowing it in a way that changes the way we plan our weeks and days and months and years and the way we submit ourselves to your spirit to be about the work you've called us to do. And it's a great work that it is. Father, we praise you and thank you uh, for this time and for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.